Hi, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Bueno. It's that time again where I ask you to do me a favor. If you have been listening thus far in the podcast, I'm guessing that you have decided you're a fan. And first of all, thank you. I can't even tell you how much I really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun for me to do and a lot of fun to get feedback that other people are enjoying it. So thank you so much for continuing to listen. And one of the things that you can help me do in order to let me continue making podcasts is to review the podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcast or wherever it is that you get your podcast. If you're able to subscribe and then potentially write a review, that would be extraordinarily helpful. And if you feel so moved to share one or more episodes with a friend, that's also extremely helpful as well. So now on to our topic for today, Andrea Varol is a really good friend of mine. She is a social worker who works for Chicago Counseling Group in Skokie and downtown Chicago. And Andrea and I met, gosh, I don't remember how many years ago, but several years ago when she was working at a treatment center that I was doing groups for. And we just instantly bonded and really kind of, we have the same thoughts about how to treat addiction and working with clients in general and also an affinity for doing our own work. So that's how it came to be that I interviewed Andrea today. So I hope very much that you enjoy this interview with Andrea Verol. Oh, Andrea, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I do want to tell the listeners what happened when you and I first just started to Skype because I think it's amazing and I kind of wish that it would have happened when we were recording. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go for it. Yeah, yeah. So Andrea signed on to Skype and we're like chatting, kind of figured out how the whole thing works. And then all of a sudden this like teeny bop pop music started playing and we were both like, what the fuck is what? happening? Where did it come from? Is that even a song you would listen to? It sounded like Maybe what your boys would listen to. <laughs> Not even. Not even. <laughs> Girl, that is some of my guiltiest guilty pleasure. Ooh, secrets. Not secrets. So that's a perfect way to start out this conversation. Right? Yeah. Well, let's just crack into it, shall we? Would you like to tell the listeners who you are and what you do? Sure. So my name is Andrea Varol, and I am a licensed clinical social worker here in Chicago, I'm in a private group practice. There's myself and two other wonderful therapists that I work alongside with, as well as three wonderful psychopharmacologists, psychiatrists that work with us in tandem, which I feel very fortunate to always have their input and guidance in terms of the medications and some of that stuff that can get real complicated. I consider myself to be a generalist with a lot of interests in the field. There's so many things that I really love about this type of work and so many different issues that I really enjoy working with. I wouldn't say that I've never really felt the need to specialize, quote unquote, in anything mm-hmm. overly specific. Having said that, though, I do enjoy working with panic, anxiety, perfectionism, Right. Issue. Yeah, perfectionism, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't affect very many people. Right, I no. Don't know of any. I, don't, right. I don't know of anybody that's sitting here talking right now. No, neither <laughs> of us, for sure. Neither of us. Not me. Ah, motivational issues and then addictions. And 
Well, the process addictions, I really enjoy quite a bit. But also family members of those suffering from addictions is really, I find, to be quite a lot of fun to work with them. Totally. Yeah. I primarily work with adults, but over the past few years have found that I really do like the young adult population. I mean, back in the day, I would have been like, <laughs> I would not have touched a 17 or an 18 year old with a 10 foot pole. Oh, but funny. Yeah, but I really like it. It's really great. There's something to be said, I think about, you know, when people that age 16, 17 come in voluntarily on their own, and they really want to do this work. It's really cool. It's really a lot of fun. Yay. That's me. Hooray. So I have I have already told the secret to our listeners that therapists tend to gravitate towards working with people who suffer from many of the things we suffer with ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) Any thoughts on that? Oh, boy. Yeah, you know, it's true. And I would say like in that vein, there's a lot of great things about that. And then there's a lot of like really fucking scary things about that, too, because, you know, if you especially if you happen to get somebody in front of you that is just so much like you or has like so many of the same issues that, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe they could basically just be, you know, a doppelganger of you just out there Mm -hmm. walking around. That can really be a little bit unnerving. Have you had that before? Yeah, actually, I don't come across it that often but mm-hmm. you know usually what i come across in my practice is kind of composites where right. like my case will be kind of like you know like oh this one's like oh yeah i can always see a little piece of me in pretty much every client you know that comes in you know male female gay straight black white like i and all the variants in between <laughs> yeah and all the variants and and i can always see something i relate to but yes yeah, so recently fairly recently i would say within the past couple of months i got a gal that i started working with that oh my goodness i mean she's like another me just out there walking around <laughs> and it's like yeah I do with her. (laughs) I'm trying to think if I've had somebody who I was like, holy shit, you are me. I don't think I've had someone who had all of the pieces, but kind of like you said, like a composite. But I find myself sometimes sharing information with my clients that simultaneously in my head, I'm going, bitch, listen up. You need this too. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Which is something that popped up when I was thinking about doing this podcast. That it's one of the things that's like the blessing and the curse of right field. I think for sure, definitely. Well, let's chat about how you came to be a therapist because I think one of the themes that keeps popping up for the people that I interview is becoming a therapist or becoming a healer of some sort is something that people don't just usually wake up one day and be like, I'm going to be a therapist. (laughs) But there's something in the work that calls to you or there's some sort of serendipity that kind of leads you to this path. So, and I don't even think I know this about you, your therapy origin history. Well, I've purposely kept it from you, Sarah. Yeah. For a lot of reasons. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So many secrets today. I love it. No. So this is going to sound a little bit cliche, but I'll explain the whole thing. So I knew that I wanted to do this kind of work in some capacity since high school. And I'll tell you why. The reason behind that is because... so. My dad has a PhD in educational psychology, which is a little bit different. Mm. I used to, you know, run around telling people that he wasn't a real 
psychologist because he didn't sit on the couch. <laughs> Not with a real one. He was a college professor that worked primarily with graduate students in education. So learning how to be teachers and Hmm. and work in the classroom. And so I was like, you know what, but I want to be a real psychologist. So we had a teen suicide prevention group in my high school that was pretty active. And I got involved with that. And I really liked it. I just, you know, really liked being involved in it and really liked the message and the mission. And so I did that sophomore through senior year of high school. And so I think that that kind of paved the way I was also fortunate in my high school that they offered a couple of uh, different psychology classes for the high school students. Mm. And so I, I took those and I just loved it. I said, you know, I really love it. This is just so fascinating. So I went on undergrad and got my undergraduate in psychology. And I think during undergraduate, I had the assumption that I would go on to do the PhD in psychology. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, like, oh, that's a lot of work. <laughs> right? Laziness <laughs> sets in. No. <laughs> realistic expectation, which I talk to my clients about. What's a realistic expectation for you? Mm-hmm. And I literally had a professor, my, I think it was my junior year, tell me that you are not really PhD material. <laughs> so, <laughs> Did they say that in a shitty way or in a, like, helpful way? He probably thought he was being helpful. And actually, you know what? <laughs> Bless his old academic heart. He Aww. probably steered me out of a lot of misery and potential yeah. money. You know? Yeah, true. I don't like academic research. I don't like academic writing. I did not want to write a dissertation. So mm-hmm. I was kind of steered in the direction of taking a look at the MSW programs and decided that was definitely the way to go because of the diversity within yeah. social work. You can do a million and one things with it. Social really. workers really can do anything. You can. It's like having a million different pairs of shoes. I love that. Yeah. Oh, that might be the title of this episode. Social <laughs> workers are like a million different pairs of shoes. Really? There are no two are alike. They're like fingerprints. Yes. I love that. It's funny, I have joked with my friends about having this sort of, well, it's not a secret. I was going to say secret judgment, but it's not secret. (laughs) Some judgment of PsyDs, Mm -hmm. that clinical psychology doctorate. And one of my friends is a PsyD and she sent me, oh God, I don't really know how to describe it. It's one of those little cartoons where they sound like little robots and they're like, so you would like to be a clinical psychologist. <laughs> and the whole the whole thing goes on and the student is like, I want people to call me doctor, like just all of this bullshit, you know, the entitlement <laughs> stuff. And at the end of the day, like the person is like, you shouldn't do this. You should be a social worker. And she was like, no, I want to get it. And it's basically like, you know, you're spending more money, you're spending more time, you don't get paid that much more when you factor in the amount of money that you have in loans, like all that shit. Yeah. So she was like, you should be a social worker. And the student was like, thanks, but no thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Some people have to learn things the hard way. Right. So sorry, suckas, social workers get it done quicker. We get it done quicker. We get it done faster. We get it done cheaper. I won't say dirtier. Wait, well, yeah, and I was going to say, don't advertise the cheaper part. We want to advocate for being able to make money in this field. That's true. But when there's a will, there's a way. Yes. 
So I am really curious. I've asked this question a trillion and a half times now, it feels like. And I think I can usually predict the way that people are going to answer based on what I know about them. And so I'm playing a little game with myself as I ask you this. But when you think of the word healer in relation to what you do, what say ye? Well, the first thing I would say is, Hmm, I have never really <laughs> thought about that much. <laughs> the first thing I would say is, hmm. Hmm. However, in preparation for the podcast, I would Ooh. say I did actually think about it. And in terms of me being a healer, yes, because that is what we aim to do. People come in in some sort of way. People come in in pain. Mm-hmm. And so I think as therapists, we just, it's a natural, very natural inclination to heal that pain. There's a strong desire. If you've got somebody sitting in front of you, if you're in this work, or if you're in this field, you know, and I feel like most of us that are in this field, or like you said earlier, have come to it from a place inside that, you know, calls to us to do this type of work. So it's a very natural desire, wish for us to heal that pain. And of course, you know, for different people that work in this field, that can look like a lot of different things. I suppose that there are a lot of ways that we heal people with this type of work as confidence, as problem solvers, as that, I think, as that one person who won't judge or shun or shame Mm -hmm. them. And so that's something that I think in terms of being a healer, that for me, when, when you ask that question, that's what I feel is one of the most important things is being able to be that person that is not going to shame this mm-hmm. individual sitting in front of you. And just so just that alone, not to speak of some of the other things that we do do. You said do do. Do do do. Sorry, I'm like a 12 year old boy at heart, and you know exactly what that's like. And I'm a 15 year old boy at heart, so that's why we get along so well. Ted's perf. Go on. You do do. We do do. That is just one of the things that we do do. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a big principle that I swear by in my work that no matter what the person in front of me says, does, doesn't say, doesn't do, whatever their history is, you know, to never ever shame that individual, no matter what, no matter if mm-hmm. I disagree, I think it was right, I think it was wrong. I think they could have done better that you never shame just never enters the equation. And I really, really believe that it's a basic human right to Mm. not be shamed and to not experience shame. And I want to put a pin in that and come back to it because I'm guessing that that has something to do with your own connection to the work personally. But I first want to say you shocked me by answering the way that you did, because I've been asking this question of people, most of the time people push it away. They don't like the word healer because I guess I like to think of myself as a healer. And when I say healer, I think person who walks with. And it sounds like a lot of people have it kind of define healer as person who actively does the healing. And I've been getting pissed off about it lately, honestly, because I'm like, why the fuck can't we just call ourselves healers? Like there is a place for humility and owning our gifts. Right. And so I am pleasantly surprised that you're like, yeah, I'm a fucking healer. Yeah, this is what I do. Yeah, I'm surprised, too, because I think you're right. Like other than the fact that I hadn't really thought about it other than (laughs) (laughs) prior to 
this morning when I said, oh, I have to sit down for Sarah's interview today. Am I a healer? Um, no, I don't really like that term. But then wait a minute. You know what? Actually, yes. Yes, I am. And this mm-hmm. is fine. But I do really like what you just said about that we are there with the person. So it's a little bit different than maybe, you know, a doctor healing. No. You know, no, I disagree. Different. I'm a fight with you. I do think it's the same because oh. I think that emotionally we can help people do like psychic surgery, whereas doctors are, you know, literally cutting things sometimes. Mm. But I think that the outcomes are based on the people and how much they bring into the room, right. if, whether right. it's a doctor or, you know, a physical health thing or an emotional health thing. I think it's the same. Yeah. And in that respect, you're right. I would agree to that, you know, same thing as physical healers, that it's up to the person, you know, they can take the prescription, right? And so exactly, or they cannot, you know, they can walk out of a doctor's office and, you know, throw the script in the trash or dump the pills down the toilet, not do the assigned physical therapy, and then they can still be in pain. In that regard, I agree that there's definitely some similarity in that we can make suggestions and mm-hmm. provide guidance for getting out of pain. And then it's, it's up to the individual to hopefully, you know, work with us to take what we have to offer. I just heard birds chirping and that sounds lovely. Yes, oh, you can hear the birds. I'm just, I'm so like, oh, after how many months of winter, God forsaken place that we call <laughs> home, Chicago. I'm just, oh. Oh, I've got the windows open. I love it. Well, I want to go back to this talk about doctors versus therapists and whether it's different or not. And it's funny because I think that culturally and when it comes to training, I think it's very different in the way that we see ourselves in relation to patients. Right. And I've actually had fairly recently a conversation with a couple different doctors where they do have this idea of you should come to me when you're ready to be healed and I have the magic and you do what I say. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Truth be told, I do kind of feel that way on the inside sometimes. It totally depends. Not all the time. (laughs) I always Mm -hmm. say, like, if I ran the world, it really would run much smoother because I'm very organized. (laughs) But in all honesty, like when people come to me, I know that I'm not doing it to them. We're doing it together. And I wonder if medicine shifted a little bit towards that idea that people would heal more. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's interesting, too. You know, and I think there is to some degree a little bit of a shift maybe in that direction in medicine. You know, Mm -hmm. like I said, I feel fortunate most of the time that I work alongside physicians that are in the field of psychiatry. And these particular people that I work with do, you know, very much believe in that kind of a Mm -hmm. mindset. Otherwise, they wouldn't be working alongside therapists. And there's ever since I've started working with this particular group, which has been, oh my gosh, I think eight years now, that that's always been a value that they've had. And one that I've always really, really respected that they treat this person as a whole individual. Mm -hmm. And there's always been a lot of communication between them in terms of the prescription pad and what medication they're choosing to prescribe and then how that's working. How does this person show up in therapy mm-hmm. every week? And both of us kind of being reliant on each other's feedback to treat the client better. Yeah. Those are the psychiatrists I like to refer to as well and physicians. But 
working with so many people who are doctors and who struggle with addiction, I just hear so much about their training and how not heart-centered it is at times and the medical hierarchy and just the way that they really abuse people who go through medical training. I mean, I get that they're kind of, you know, trying to weed people out, but man, it's torture to some people. Yeah. And one of the first jobs I had when I first started out in the field, I worked medical social work Mm. for the hospitals here in Chicago. And so got a chance to sort of see a lot of that up close firsthand, worked with the residents and yeah, they were tortured. I mean, they're (laughs) (laughs) right. It's kind of backward. And that was the early 2000s. And I think there's been a little bit, like I said, a little bit of a shift away from that, but probably Mm -hmm. not nearly enough. Mm -hmm. I know that they get, depending on what med school they go to and things, Mm -hmm. some are better than others in terms of having them be trained. And I think like in light of the the recent opiate addiction crisis that Mm -hmm. there has been a little bit more emphasis on that than there has been in the past and understanding addiction and things like that. But clearly there's a long way to go. Right. I do just wonder like what effect that would have on people if doctors showed up and were like, yeah, I'm a wounded healer, you know? Yeah. Right. And I know that there are those. Yes. Yes. That are out there without a doubt, but yeah, probably they're outnumbered. Yeah. Well, speaking of wounded healer, shall we shift to that perspective? How do you or do you not, I guess, see yourself as a wounded healer? Well, girl, I'm perfect. So <laughs> ain't nothing wrong with me. Oh, true. We said we said that earlier. Perfectionism right. runs deep. We got that out of the way. Also, another question that I hadn't ever really given a whole heck of a lot of thought to prior to thinking I have to sit down with Sarah today. And so, yes, I would also answer yes to that as well. I think that we've all been wounded in one way or another. It's just, it's part of life, you know, that nobody mm-hmm. gets through unscathed. And I also, too, I find that the longer you live, the more wounds you're going to collect yeah. along the way, you know. And I, I think we tend to think of like, you know, childhood wounds and things being first and foremost. And of course, those are very important because, you know, they're in the formative years and they really can set the stage or set the tone for how we continue to develop into, you know, adolescents and adults Mm -hmm. and on into old age as well. But no one gets through unscathed. You know, if you do, you haven't lived. I don't don't know if you've been living in a vacuum or just... Mm -hmm. Or in denial. Or in denial. Right. Exactly. And I definitely have certain wounds from childhood and my family of origin, you know, not to necessarily put them on blast or shame them. I mean, I think that people do the best with what they have at the time. Mm -hmm. And now that I am a parent, I do see how hard it is. (laughs) I, (laughs) I judged so hard when I was growing up, like, you know, what a bunch of assholes. And see that it's a little easier said than done. I mean, it's a tough job. I'm not going to lie. So I think that having some of those wounds from, and not only from, you know, just my family of origin, obviously from other things. No, and, it's and only it's your parents' other, fault. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> JK. So these things, you know, yes, they have affected me and they continue to affect me in my adult life. And I think as we were talking just briefly about a few minutes ago, one of the greatest gifts 
that I feel that I've been given through working in this field is seeing the value of counseling and therapy Mm -hmm. and being just as eager to sit on that side of the couch. Speaking of perfectionism, you know, when I first started doing my own self-work a number of years ago, I realized how uncomfortable I was in that role. Thought like, oh yeah, of course, like every therapist should go and do their own work. But you know, when I first got in there, it was like, yeah, (laughs) this deer in headlights, like I'm supposed to tell this person and stuff. And so it really took a long time for me to break out of that shell or, or that having that discover. I still, honestly, I still, I, I shouldn't lie. I still have to work on it because I guess one of the ways that my wounds show up is that I have a tendency to really promote this particular self image where, you know, mm. I'm fine. I don't need any help. I can do this myself and I'm very put together. I'm not a mess. I certainly wouldn't want anybody to think that, including a therapist that I'm paying. (laughs) Wow. That's some good defenses there. (laughs) Oh, they're solid. And then from being in that role, from working as a therapist, you know, I'm very aware of the fact that if you don't put in, you ain't going to get out. Yep. So if I go to my own sessions and I'm, you know, either lying to him or I'm managing my self image. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, I could also just talk to him about the Cubs game and call it a day. I'm not going to get right. my out of it. Mm-hmm. So it just goes to say that that's the way that my wounds have showed up, that I've typically been more comfortable with the idea of helping other people. And I think what I would add to that, what I've thought about is, you know, I think as a therapist or quote unquote, not really supposed to talk about yourself, which self-disclosure, that's probably a whole nother session or yeah, podcast. Right interview that we could talk about, but you can hide out like that, right? And it's, totally. However, if you do, I think it's very easy to become disingenuine that way. And, you know, I realized several years ago as well, like I was saying, that having this pattern that I was not genuine. I was not my showing up mm. as my true self. I'm not only in my work as a therapist, not only in my work as a client, at, you know, to my mm. therapist, but friends, family, in my marriage. And it's only been, I would say, within the past, I don't know, year to a couple of years that I've really kind of had to come to terms with that and, and admit mm. that it's certainly not working very well for me. Yeah. You know, I can get by, but it's not, I guess, as Brene Brown would say, it's not wholehearted living. Yeah. It's really not. And so through therapy and recovery groups, I've learned the value of addressing those personal wounds. And my experience is that it's not easy. It's an arduous day to day, sometimes hour to hour task, and and I'll never be done, you know, but that's okay. And I've got to tell you, I mean, I'm not going to like tell your actual secrets to all the listeners, but the time (laughs) not too long ago that you called me in real pain and real distress. I sure did. I got to tell you, that was just like we would say to our clients, it's such an honor to be witness to that (laughs) and to be a person who you've chosen to share that side of yourself with is just awesome. And I was so grateful. I really was like so touched. Like obviously I was concerned Aww. for you, but from but from my perspective, I was like, oh, she loves me. Well, and I would add to that, Sarah, that, you know, and especially for somebody like me that of course, not only do I love you and I know that you 
get it, but I trust you, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think that's an important thing to add to that as work, as healers, that people have to trust you. Mm -hmm. You you could know everything there is to know about cognitive behavioral therapy Mm -hmm. or client-centered therapy, Rosarian therapy, whatever. You can just be the smartest bulb in the box. But if you don't have that ability to convey to a client that they can trust you, then you're limited into what you can do for them. I'm trying to think of what Brene says about trust. And she doesn't necessarily draw the line between trust and vulnerability, except to say that trust is built in small moments, right? And I think that happens with friendships and with therapy too. Like, as you mentioned, self-disclosure. And I think I'm not in the room with other therapists, but I think I potentially self-disclose more often than a lot of people do. And I feel like I got that permission from Brene Brown, really, just to be able to use myself in the room and validate, right? One of the big things I want to do with people to eradicate shame is validate that I've struggled with something similar or I know someone who struggles with that and it's a bitch, you know, and I'm here with you. Oh, absolutely. I fully agree. And self-disclosure is one of those interesting things that, you know, if you ask 10 different people, you're going to get 10 different answers about what they think of it, if you should do it, how Mm -hmm. much, how often. And I agree. I mean, I'm sure Brene has amazing things to say or just lessons that can be learned about it. And like you said, too, I'm not necessarily in the room with other therapists, but just from conversations and knowing how a lot of my colleagues do work, I do feel that there's a huge value in that. I I fully agree with everything that you said about it. I think that used as a tool and used in the right way Mm -hmm. can be incredibly powerful. And again, I would take my own experience as a client. You know, I've had therapists that do use it to some degree. And I've had ones that absolutely would never in a million years. And it's like, which one do I prefer? Well, hmm. Yeah. I wonder, I'm not even going to answer that question. It's pretty obvious. So if you're not able to use it again, I think you run the risk of coming across as like, again, you know, this buttoned up disingenuine thing that's sitting in front of you. It's funny because I had a therapist for, I think I saw her for about six years, who was very strictly psychodynamic in that she was a blank slate. And she helped me tremendously. I truly cannot thank her for the foundation that she helped me build. And, you know, I started working with her while I was going to grad school. And so there was all sorts of stuff coming up that she really supported. But over time, I started having that feeling of like, do you even like me? Like, (laughs) and I don't necessarily think she was judging me, but that's what it felt like a lot. Yep. And it was just because there was that lack of validation and I guess reciprocity. And obviously, you know, like it's not a reciprocal relationship. Right. But right. I guess I had hoped at some point that the relationship would get to a little bit more space for that. But that's not the way that she worked. And that was fine. And I found a therapist who does work in a way that kind of supported the next step for me in healing. So, you know, I don't want to necessarily judge or throw shade at therapists who don't use self-disclosure. Also to Helen King, who I had on the podcast earlier, she has boundaries like a ninja. It's pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. I see her for supervision, so it's different than therapy, but she errs on the side of absolute caution and absolute like privacy. And she's an incredible, amazing therapist, you know? And so I think 
it does really depend on who you are. And you and I are clearly people who need that piece. You know, for me, I know it's a lot of like getting that validation that I didn't get from my family of origin and seeking that now as an adult to help get myself reparented, you know, at the ripe old age of 39, you know, (laughs) better late than ever. Right. There's never a too late time to do that. And yeah, I think you're right, you know, to speak to that. Right. There's definitely ones that do it, that don't do it. There's ones that do it very, very minimally and only in certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. And I think too, another piece to add to that quickly is that for me, I mean, again, I'm always keeping boundaries and things at the forefront of my mind, but I will read a client Mm -hmm. to decide what it is I think they need. You know, and some clients, you know, need that or want it or are open to it. And some, you know, I think if you're able to get a decent read on them, yeah. you may get the impression that they don't need it or they might be a little bit more comfortable without it. And so mm-hmm. I feel like I'm usually able to, I think that's a skill of mine that I'm able to read people pretty well and mm-hmm. kind of go with the speed of what it is that I think that they need. That's such a good point because now I'm thinking of a particular client who I noticed that anytime I would give any sort of self-disclosure, she would kind of shut down a little bit. And I, mm-hmm. and I had to be like, okay, note to self, this is not a tool to use with this client. And it was just interesting because it was opposite than what I expected from this person. So you can't necessarily tell by what people say or what you think about them ahead of time. It's it, like you said, really reading someone in that moment and being open to that feedback, whether it's verbal or nonverbal. Yeah, I, I had a client in my office yesterday and we were talking a little bit about that. I said, that's why I hate phone sessions because you can't, yeah. so much of it is lost, you know, it's yeah. just, I, I do them, you know, people need it, they're sick, the babysitter didn't show up, but I don't, you know, I don't like it just simply because of that aspect that there's so much of that connection, me being able to read a person's energy or their body language that I'm mm-hmm. missing. And so I don't feel like I'm doing as good of a job. Yeah. So I want to try to wrap it up within the hour, but so I'm going to ask you a super big question right now, of course, because that's what you do, doorknob confessions and doorknob podcasting. (laughs) But you mentioned earlier, and I said I wanted to put a pin in this idea that everyone is entitled to not be shamed, right? And I'm curious about your relationship with shame and if that has been an important piece of your own work as a therapist, as a person, as a human? Oh, yes. 100%. Shame. What does Renee Brown say? Shame's like a gremlin. She calls Mm -hmm. them gremlins. They're it, they. Motherfuckers. Right. Just horrible, like, devil gremlins. And I don't know, honestly, Sarah, you know, where that comes from. That is one thing that I have spent a decent amount of time thinking about is where does this concept of shame come from? Like, is it Mm -hmm. innate? Are we born with it? Or is it made? You know, my therapist I have now that I've I've worked with him for, oh my goodness, I think we are going to be celebrating six years together (laughs) this summer. (laughs) Uh, You know, his take on it, because I brought it up in a session one day, is that no, it's not an inherent thing that, you know, we are born 100% shameless and that that is something that we are taught that is inflicted on us. And I disagreed with him at the time, but then, you know, I think when I've put more thought into it, I think that he's probably 
a little bit more accurate than I had given him credit for originally, only because the messages are everywhere. Well, and I actually disagree with him, too. And I think it's a nature and nurture thing Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. I've certainly seen people who are more prone to guilt versus shame. But I had a client tell me a story last week about her son and he's like four. And my Mm -hmm. instant feedback to her was, your son is wired for shame because she is an incredible mom. And I know that she is not that she's doing everything right because a person can't do that. But as much as a mom can, she's doing everything right. And the way that her son is still experiencing shame, I was like, "Okay, girlfriend, this is what we need to do. (laughs) And knowing that she can't control whether or not he feels shame. Mm-hmm. And that's why I do think that some of us can be wired that way. And mm-hmm. I was talking to my business partner this weekend and he worked with Brene, right? And I asked him, I was like, do you experience that? Like not good enough feeling? I said, cause I still, that's a river that runs through me constantly. And it's mm-hmm. something that every single day I have to make a choice not to buy into that feeling. And he's like, you know what? He's like, I really honestly haven't felt shame in a long time. And he said that wow. that after working Jealous. with, Bre- I know, right? He's like, after working with Brene and learning what I did and applying all the techniques and tools with myself, he's like, I really don't struggle with it like I used to. And I think that may be the difference between people like myself who might be wired for that and have to constantly work on it and people who aren't wired for that. And they have it because of, you know, environment and learning and behavior. And then they're able to come out the other side. And I mean, he is really one of the most healthy people. So I believe that it's true. I don't think that he's just a sociopath all of a sudden. He's not just blowing smoke up your ass. Yeah, I don't think so. I'm going to (laughs) say that's true. And we're going to try to find a time to have him on the podcast. And I definitely want to dig into that more because I think it's so interesting. Yeah, no, you know what? It's so funny that you mentioned that about this friend of yours, because that is the reason why I have given it more thought as of recently, because, you know, as you know, I have these two boys and, mm-hmm. and they're great. But I do believe that my younger one is wired. Unfortunately, the poor child takes after his mother. Mm-hmm. He's sensitive. He is a sensitive, sensitive kid. And I was am as well. And, and because of that, I believe, like you said, he's wired for shame and he is super sensitive to particularly to failure and to rejection. Mm-hmm. Surprise, surprise, just like as a mom. And right. it's so tough to sometimes to parent him because it just breaks my heart, you know, to see it. And, yeah. and I think that like you were saying about your friend, you know, I'm not perfect, but I think that, you know, as a mom, I've really done a lot of things right mm-hmm. and a lot of things to steer him, as has my husband. You know, we're both very supportive of both of them and he still just struggles big time with it and you know what he's going to a social worker right now he is oh good for is, him yeah, you know at 11 years old and for a kid that said i don't know about i don't think i want to do that i don't think Aww. i want to talk to a stranger he's taken to it like a, a fish water he's really gotten into it and he's Aww. he's started to do the work at 11 years old so you know what i'm really really proud of him yeah for doing you know, and for being brave enough to take my suggestion. And, you know, because what I had told him, I said, Daniel, I love you, but I can't be your mom and your therapist at the same time. Yeah. But so, yes, to sort of wrap up and answer your question. Yes, I have struggled with shame. Some of the earliest memories I have are of being in a place of shame. Mm-hmm. 
And so I do agree. You know, I do think that some people are just more prone to it or more wired up to experience shame, even Mm -hmm. though every single person alive does at times and has the capacity to feel it. You know, some of us just unfortunately more than others. So tell your therapist I said to suck it. I'll be like, hey. <laughs> so my friend I know who thinks you're wrong. <laughs> specializes in shame and she said suck it. <laughs> <laughs> He'll laugh. He'll yes, laugh. Ex- that's exactly right. <laughs> that a good sense of humor. Yeah, what you've told me about him, I figured he would think that was funny. He's pretty awesome. Well, since we're coming up on the end of the hour, I guess I wanted to just make a little space for anything that we didn't talk about that you want to share with listeners. Oh, my goodness. Dun, dun, dun. Um, Make it brilliant. I like donuts. (laughs) (laughs) And that means if any of Andrea's clients are listening, bring her donuts. Or don't actually don't because then that'll probably induce shame. Right? It's so bad. It really would. <laughs> the shame. That I really shouldn't be accepting gifts from my clients. The shame that I just ate the whole box. Right? Oh my god. <laughs> Donuts yeah. are a thing that, like, if they're around, they're not around for long. Oh my god. Oh, they're like I have no control. <laughs> I always said, like, yeah, I could have a bag of Doritos in my house for months. Like, they'll get stale and grumbled. But nope. If there's donuts around, like, it's all yep. it's over. It's over. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> What? Anything else besides you like donuts? (laughs) (laughs) I enjoyed that thoroughly. (laughs) What else would I want to say? Just in closing, you know, I know this sounds so cliche and so cheesy, but I really do. I really like doing this work. I really Mm. feel privileged. I really feel like I'm in that lucky one to two percent of people that can say they like their job. You know, I'm around so that hate hate their job or, you know, and mm-hmm. a lot of these people, you know, make two or three times the amount of money that I do, but they hate their job. Right. You know? And it's like, you know, I just feel like I wouldn't want, I wouldn't trade it, you know, for something that paid two or three times as much. I mean, right. don't get me wrong. I like money. I like donuts and I like money, but you know, <laughs> <Hey>. I like, <laughs> I, but I like to be happy. And I really feel just really that privileged and just really grateful that, I get to do this. And yeah. that, you know, when I go to work, I generally enjoy what I do when I come home, you know, feeling most of the time feeling pretty good, feeling pretty accomplished. And mm-hmm. so I, I do. I, I really feel fortunate about that. Well, awesome. I think that's a great place to wrap it up. Okay. So thank you. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for asking me to do this. Thank you for doing it. I'm going to tell everybody you were super nervous. I was nervous. <laughs> I was like, do I have to do this? <laughs> yeah, I know. And now that it's over, do you think it was all right? Do you think you're going to be pleased with yourself? Or are you in that like days of like, what did I just say? I don't know. I've heard, you know, I've heard a lot of actors and actresses say they absolutely hate to watch, mm-hmm. you know, the films of themselves, um, you know, acting. And so I feel like it might be a little bit of the same thing, but that's OK. I'm willing I'll listen to it. <laughs> and you did it. That's the important thing. I'm proud of you. I did it. Girl, that is my thing these days is doing things that I don't want to do. Nice. You're such an adult. I try. <laughs> thank you. you. People like you inspire me every day, though. <laughs> well, thank you. It's an honor to be able to have this conversation with you and to be able to share it with listeners, too. 
Yay. Thank you. Thanks so much for doing this. You are awesome. I tell everybody that like everyone, Aww. do you know Sarah Bueno? Yes, I do. She's so awesome. Yes, we know. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a little fan chant. I love it. It is. Oh, <laughs> well, thank you. You're welcome. I adore you. I think hopefully as much as you say you adore me. I, I think the feeling is mutual. I love you more. <gasps> no. <laughs> All right. Well, we better end this love fast. The, my editor keeps telling me that at the end of the podcast, there's just like, you know, you and your guests were just like tooting each other's horns for like five minutes. Can I cut that? And I was like, she's I like, guess. She's like, I was in the bathroom vomiting. <laughs> So, Andrea, you're probably going to want. Oh, my editor's name is Andrea too. And oh yay! Andrea, She's you might be awesome. Though. Yeah, right. But you <laughs> might want to keep this because I think that this is at least entertaining. But we'll see. Anyway, Andrea, <laughs> it, it, I'm. Uh, let's just say goodbye because I have so many more okay. things to say. But thank you for being here. You're welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Alrighty. Bye bye. Okay. Bye. Thanks so much for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Andrea Varol. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and Edwin Ruiz at the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, Liam O'Donnell for that album art photo, and Ben Mueller for our theme music. For more information on Andrea, you can visit my website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. And as always, you can find Conversations with the Wounded Healer on Facebook and Twitter. And don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Thanks so much and have a great day. Bye-bye.